ask that we turn our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 25. Romans 4, 1 through 25. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law were to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Our text today answers that vital, all-important question, in fact, that age-old question, how sinners become right with God. How do sinners become right with God? Or we could put it another way, how does God put sinners right with himself? 
Ages ago, the patriarch Job raised this very question. When it asked in Job chapter 25 and verse 4, how then can man be righteous before God? In the New Testament, in the, the term under which this question is addressed is the word justification. What is this doctrine of justification? The doctrine of justification asserts that God declares a sinner free from the guilt and condemnation of sin such that he or she is regarded as being righteous and acceptable in his sight. And it's important that we distinguish carefully by noting the doctrine of justification is not concerned with making the sinner righteous. It is not concerned with making the sinner righteous, but with God reckoning or regarding the sinner righteous. And he does so on the basis of the righteousness of Christ imputed to the sinner through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in our last study, chapter 3, verses 20 to 31, we heard Paul affirming that this justifying righteousness of God comes freely sinner apart from the works of the law. Chapter 3, verse 20, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 23-24, For all have sinned and fall short, and as we said last time in the Greek, are constantly falling short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And here in Romans 4, which we're studying today, Paul presents the case that the doctrine of justification is not really a new teaching. It is not a new doctrine, and he gives illustration to the effect that God's way of salvation in the New Testament is precisely the same as it was in the Old Testament. In fact, he had previously made this point, this very point, in chapter 3 and verse, verses 21-22, where he wrote, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In our study this morning, we find here in Romans chapter 4, Three truths related to the doctrine of justification. The question as to how God puts sinners right with himself. In the first place, justification, that act whereby God declares sinners righteous, is independent of works. Justification is independent of works. In verses 1 through 8, Paul, we see there, singles out Abraham as an illustration of this truth that justification is independent of one's good works. He begins in verse 1 with a question, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? In effect, he's asking his readers that it is clear that most of them were Jewish In light of the truth I just presented to you, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, what then are we to say of Abraham? You see, Paul singled out Abraham because of the very high regard and affection with which he was held by the Jews. Abraham was the beloved patriarch of Israel. 
He singled out Abraham because of the tremendous significance he had for them, not only in terms of their lineage, but in terms of their spiritual heritage. It was from Abraham that the Jewish nation originated. Remember, God called him back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, how that he should get up out of his country, he should leave his kindred, he should leave his family. And of course, we know the rest of the story. God promised him that he would make of him a great nation. And fast forward, Abraham becomes the father of the Jewish nation. The epitome of piety and faith in God, Abraham, reputed to be the friend of God, Second Chronicles 20 verse 7, was regarded then as their spiritual father. Unless they should conclude that Abraham was righteous, he was accepted by God, he was savingly favored by God because of works righteousness, Paul called attention to him as the prime example of an Old Testament individual who was justified by God solely on the basis of faith. So in verses 1 through 8, Paul establishes that God's justification of Abraham was not the product of Abraham's good works. And in this regard, he makes three statements which refute the notion that the saving, justifying favor of God accrues to one on the basis of works. First of all, in verse 2, he argues that salvation by works is conducive to boasting and that no one can boast before God. Salvation by works is conducive to boasting, and no one can really boast before God. Here's what he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Boasting about law-based works righteousness is out of the question when it comes to dealing with the God who justifies is what Paul is saying. Paul had made a similar point back in chapter 3 and verse 27. He asked the question in light of the truth. Of course, I'm paraphrasing that we are justified by faith. What then can we make of boasting? And obviously, the rhetorical answer has the effect of suggesting there is really no boasting. My friends, the truth is not even the most religious, morally upright person on earth can ever find grounds on which to boast before God on the basis of his or her good works. If anything, the word of God declares that what God in fact owes every human being on the face of the earth is eternal death. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6 verse 23. Second, Paul argues that works-based righteousness is completely at odds with the justifying grace of God. Look at what he says in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. A worker has in view his wages, which is owed to him. We know that. We go to work, and at the end of the week, or the end of the month, or every two weeks, we are not looking for a gift. That was earned. That is what we call our due, our wages. And what Paul is essentially saying is that were it the case that one were justified 
by works, then God would owe it to that person to justify him or her, to declare him or her righteous. That individual would have effectively worked for his or her salvation. That's the essence of what Paul is saying. And such is not the case. Why? Because back in chapter 3, verse 24, we learned that justification, God declaring sinners righteous, comes to the sinner freely as a gift of God's grace, so that one cannot work for that which is meant to be a gift. As Romans eleven six will later say, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. The word of God is saying here that if it were that we were justified, God declared us righteous on the basis of our works, then grace would be thrown through the window. It means that every one of us would have to work our way into heaven. At the end of the day, God would simply be giving us our due. My friends, our being justified by God then stems not from how hard we work or strive. It stems not from how much we persevere. It stems not from how much we try to be righteous. Yes, it is true. The word of God tells us we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But here's the point. Note carefully, it did not say we are to work for our salvation. It's two different things. He says we are to work out our salvation, which implies that to begin with, salvation was already resident within us. And here is where the work of God comes, the saving work of, and grace of God comes. It is God in grace who works salvation in the heart and life of the sinner. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And so rather than being the wages for works or salvation or being deemed righteous by God, it is the gift of his grace, accessed not by trying, not by working, but by our trusting and resting in the merits of Christ's righteousness and his finished work. That is biblical gospel salvation. Now verse 5 presents a contrasting scenario in which one, Paul says, does not work, but he does what? Simply believes, he believes in the God who justifies the ungodly. We read unto the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Here's what Paul says, his faith is counted as righteousness. Listen, my friends, one of the problems today where persons becoming saved is concerned. The reason many reject the gospel, the reason many turn from the gospel, it is because, may I put it like this, it is scandalously too simple. Listen what the text says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, he says his faith is counted as righteousness. But you see what? Human nature loves to bring something to the table. Human nature loves a sense of contribution. Human nature loves to work for what they have. I often say this, I use this by way of illustration. If I were to take out a $100 bill this morning, and I were to hold it up and say, how many of you, who would come and take this $100 bill from me? 
And there are basically two or more reasons why, and I'm suggesting, I'm literally, I'm suggesting why you, the audience, present audience, would not come and take it. Two possible reasons why you would not come and take it. You know why you would not come and take it? Because there's a catch. You think there's a catch to it. It's too good to be true. Patrick is taking out $100 and he's saying, come and take this. But here's the point. You know another reason why you would not take it? Here's another reason why you would not take it. You would not take it because it is the popular ethos. It's a popular prevailing ethos, particularly of our culture, that says, listen, I don't take things from people for nothing. Right? There is something, some kind of embarrassment that comes from getting free stuff for many people. But here's the point. The gospel goes forth and the word of God is saying, come and take the water of life freely. What does a person have to do to be saved? Acts chapter 16 verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He did not say that we must do this, we must do that, we must go to church, we must get baptized and so on. He says this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be what? Saved. And implied in the statement of the Apostle Paul, where he says, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Implied in the statement is that those who are justified by God, those who would be declared righteous by God, approach him without any idea of, without any notion of being saved by works. Notice, according to the text, they approach him knowing themselves to be what? Ungodly. Ungodly. That is, that they are in a condition of being without God as sinners and rebels in his sight. That is why the people who are most resistant to the gospel, you see, are the goody-goodies, the self-righteous, the morally upright, the religious, those who are filled with their religiosity. But notice what the text says. Notice again, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Suggested there is that any who would come the way of justification by faith and faith alone, they know themselves to be what? Ungodly and hence unworthy and what they simply do they come with open hands as a songwriter says nothing in my hands i bring simply to the cross i cling and by virtue of their responding to god by faith god the word of god tells us counts or regards their faith as righteousness it's as simple as that thus no longer does god see them for the sinners that they are god sees them as they are in Christ. He sees them as bearing the righteousness of Christ. And that is why someone else says in justification, when God declares the sinner righteous, by the time he's through declaring the sinner righteous, it is just as if I'd never sinned. Just if I'd never sinned. That's justification. God declares sinners righteous such that he sees them as righteous in his sight. Now, having showed Abraham as an example of one who had justifying faith apart from works, Paul then points his readers to another Old Testament luminary who, like Abraham, was loved and revered by the Jews. 
David, a righteous and godly man. And Paul points out, Paul argues that he too believed and taught that sinners are justified by grace apart from works. Look at verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Let me tell you, if there is one man who knew the blessedness of God's free justifying grace, it was who? David. And when we think of David, yes, we think of the sweet psalmist of Israel. We think of the beloved of the Lord. We think of a man who loved God. We think of a man who, remember at one time, the Bible tells us how he danced before the Lord. He was all fervent for the Lord. But here's the point. David had a great blot on his life. In fact, the historians, the narrators, when they would refer to David from time to time, they would say, except for the sin regarding Bathsheba and Uriah. David came to the point where he was guilty of murder. He was guilty of adultery. And when he tried to keep silent, when he tried to cover it up, he talks about how that his bones as it were, roaring. His bones were melting. He was in such great sorrow. And then he writes Psalm 51. He talks about how he confessed his sin to the Lord. But in Psalm 41, he speaks of the blessedness, of the happiness, of the privilege to whom the Lord does not impute sin. And he says, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is that man whom the Lord will not count his sin. David proclaims here the wonderful truth that the recipients of God's justifying grace are blessed. That is, they come into a standing of great privilege. Such privilege that gives them every reason to be happy, every reason to be joyful. They are blessed and they can be joyful because God has imputed righteousness to them freely without their having to work for it. They can be happy, they can be joyful because their sins have been forgiven. They have been washed, they have been cleansed of their sins because their sins have been cleared away from God's sight as far as the east is from the west. They can be happy, they can be joyful, all because God no longer holds their sins against them Having been expunged, their sins no longer appear in God's record. C.S. Lewis was certainly right when he stated that forgiveness is perhaps the most glorious word in the English language. And for sure, we could state categorically and dogmatically that there is no more glorious experience for guilty hell-deserving sinners than to be not only forgiven and acquitted of their sins by the thrice holy God of heaven, but to be declared not guilty, but righteous in his sight, to have their slate wiped clean of sin, and to see them stand before God, justified, declared righteous. That has to be the most blessed and most happy and joyful of all experiences. In describing this wonderful blessing of God's justifying grace toward the sinner, John Blanchard puts it like this. He says this quote, When a man is declared by God to be justified, God not only counts him as being not guilty, but as being righteous in his sight. 
The justified man is treated by God as one with Christ, and therefore all the work of Christ belongs to him as though it was his own work. The benefits of Christ's death are his, and so also are those of his life. The death of Christ deals with the penalty of all his disobedience, while Christ's righteousness, his conformity to all his Father's perfect will, is the righteousness reckoned by God to belong to each believer. Here's what he says. In the matter of our punishment, God looks on the death of Christ and says, it is sufficient. In the matter of our acceptance, God looks at the obedience of Christ and says, I'm well pleased. As a result, the sinner is not only spared the punishment that is brought into fellowship with God, he is not only acquitted from the bar of the courtroom, he is welcomed in the heart of the family of God as a child of God, end quote. Beautiful. The blessedness of being declared righteous by the holy God of heaven. For God to look at the sinner, regardless of how vile and how wretched and how filthy the sinner might be, if the sinner turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, look away from all else, look away from himself, and looks to Christ, the Bible says that when God declares him or her righteous, just as if that never sinned. Hallelujah. That is the gospel, and that is the word of God which we need to hear in our time. The free, justifying grace of God to all who believe. In short, the teaching of Romans 4, verses 1 through 8, is that God puts sinners right with himself, totally apart from their works. He does so, why? Because works, works righteousness, is conducive to boasting, and no one can boast before God. He does so because his justifying act toward the sinner is all a matter of God's grace. Grace is a free gift, which means it cannot be earned as a worker earns his wages, which are due him. Not so when it comes to God's justifying grace. In the second place, justification, that act whereby God declares sinners righteous, not only is it independent of works, but notice verses 9 through 12. It is irrespective of rituals. It is irrespective of rituals. Now notice, having cited the blessings that accrue to those who are forgiven by God and counted righteous by God, Paul then, in verses 9 through 12, addresses the issue of circumcision. Remember now, his audience is primarily Jews, it seems. And he contends that being circumcised is not what brings one into a right standing with God. In fact, he says specifically, it was not because Abraham was circumcised why he was declared righteous. You see, why is Paul saying that? Because it was a settled belief, you see, among the Jews that unless one is circumcised, one has no fellowship, no favor, no saving favor with God. In fact, this was the very thing that Luke records in Acts 15, verse 1, where Luke states how that certain individuals, here's what Luke says, Acts 15, 1, came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this idea of salvation by circumcision, we know was one of the heresies that Paul battled against 
We see him battling against it in the book of Galatians. We see him battling against it in the epistle to the Philippians. And here in our text, Paul, we notice, effectively refutes and debunks the idea that a person comes into right relationship with God through the observance of this right. In the most emphatic way, Paul makes clear that it was before Abram was circumcised that God imputed righteousness to him. He writes, notice what he says in verses 9 through 10. He says, is this blessing, what blessing? The blessing of justification being declared righteous by God freely. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. You see how Paul is very emphatic? Paul is holding the scriptures before his audience, and he's saying, listen, read carefully. Look carefully at the propositions, and look at the flow of the text. Look at the flow of the narrative. Was it before or after that God declared him righteous? And of course, we know he was not circumcised until somewhere in chapter 18 of Genesis. When was he declared righteous? Back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, it was before he was circumcised. Paul is simply saying here that Abraham's faith in God was counted to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. In other words, circumcision played no part in his salvation, is what Paul is saying. It had absolutely nothing to do with his coming in the saving favor and acceptance with God. Now notice in addition to verse 10, which stresses that Abraham was reckoned righteous before he was circumcised. Note the varying ways in which Paul hammers home this point. Note the varying ways in which Paul continues to press home and hammer home this point that Abraham's justification did not come after he was circumcised, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11b, he says, watch this. The righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Look at the C part of verse 11. He is a father of all who believe without being circumcised. Verse 12b, the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, let me say this. Paul has been speaking here specifically about the ritual, the rite of circumcision. And Paul is saying, look, circumcision cannot cut it when it comes to being saved. Circumcision saves no one. It never saved Abram. But here's the point. From what Paul says here, we could make the application to the following. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, Church membership, none of these things, devotional activities, can ever save a person. There are people today who teach what is known as baptismal regeneration, that unless a person is baptized, they cannot be saved. Nothing could be further from the truth. And how do we know that? Because Paul tells us that his mission in preaching the gospel was God sent him not to baptize, but to what? Preach the gospel. We are not saved because we are baptized. And let me say this, because this is something that is sometimes downplayed. If a person professes to be saved and refuses to be baptized, that's not good. Every person who professes faith in Christ ought to be baptized. It's a command from our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the point. 
Baptism does not say baptism is simply a step of obedience. Having professed faith in the Lord Jesus, baptism comes after salvation, not before salvation. And the tragedy is, we have in our churches today, beloved, there are people who are in churches today who have been baptized, they take the Lord's Supper, they are members of the church, yet they are strangers to the saving grace of God. What a tragedy. What are they trusting in? They are resting on the fact that they were baptized so many years ago. They are resting in the fact that they belong to this church. But let me say this, all that baptism can do is to wash the skin. It goes no further from than the skin. It is only the blood of the Lord Jesus that cleanses and penetrates our souls and saves us from sin. Listen, baptism, church membership, you name it, all of the, that these things can do for us is to make us religious, but they can never cause us to be righteous in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. It is only the saving merits of the Lord Jesus and one's resting, one trusting in the Lord Jesus that saves a person from sin, that gives them a right standing before God. And we're going to wrap up this morning, but notice in verses 11 and 12, and we'll come back to this passage. Essentially then, the point Paul is making in verses 9 through 12 as we close this morning, is that rituals and ordinances without saving faith in Christ, as I said, can only make us religious but not righteous. They can never put us in a position of righteousness before God. It is only by looking away from our religiosity. It is only by our looking away from our rituals and resting in Christ and Christ alone that saves us. In verses 11 and 12, Paul explains then, as, and this is where we are coming to a close, Paul explains then God's purpose in Abraham's circumcision. And why it was that he received the righteousness of God before he was circumcised. So Paul is setting out in these verses to say, look here, you know why it was that Abraham, God did it deliberately, you know, God did this deliberately. He caused Abraham to be righteous before him, before he was circumcised. Why Paul? Here's the reason Paul gives. First of all, Abraham's circumcision, and this is with dealing now with the fact that he's circumcised. Abraham's circumcision, Paul says, functioned as a sign and seal. That is to say, a confirmatory, authenticating evidence of the fact that he was righteous through faith even in his uncircumcised state. What is baptism to us today? Baptism is not salvation. Baptism is a sign and a seal that is designed to confirm, that is designed to point to the fact that we are saved. It, in and of itself, it does not save. It merely functions as a sign. It functions as a seal. And a seal, of course, also the meta of a seal in Scripture also carries the idea of authenticating, of saying this is legit. This, this is why it's very important when we talk about why should a Christian be water baptized? Because baptism marks the believer. Water baptism marks out the believer as one who has taken Christ as Savior. Now here's the point. Baptism is designed to mark. It's the ring, so to speak, evidencing the fact that we have been joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, Abraham's circumcision, notice the B part of verse 11, served to make him, it served to make him the spiritual progenitor of those who, though not circumcised and yet believe, are reckoned righteous by God. 
And that explains Paul's contention elsewhere, particularly in the book of Galatians, where Paul insists that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. They can come to Christ by simple faith and be saved. By the way, here's the wonderful news. That's why, you see, the thief on the cross. Jesus could say to him the moment he believed, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He never lived to be baptized. So this is exactly what Paul is saying. Abraham's circumcision served to make him the spiritual father of not only the circumcised, but even of the circumcised, those who are uncircumcised and yet believe and are reckoned righteous by God. And then thirdly, that Abraham was circumcised after he was counted righteous by God, served to make him the father, Paul says, of those who are not just circumcised, that is the Jews, serve to make him the father, not just of the Jews who are circumcised. They are not just circumcised, but possess faith, as he did before he was circumcised. So God deliberately designed it. You see that Abraham was saved before circumcision. He was declared righteous before circumcision. First of all, to declare the fact that people, and we could substitute here, people who have not been baptized, can still be saved. Because it is not the ritual, it is Christ who saves. Boy, what rich truths we have here this morning. The free, justifying grace of God. Let me ask you this question this morning as we close. In whom are you trusting? In what are you trusting? Are you trusting in the fact that you are good, you're doing pretty well? As far as goodness is concerned, let me tell you, the moment we begin to think that we're going to heaven because we happen to be good, because we come to church every Sunday, because we have been baptized, let me tell you, we have missed God's righteousness. God specializes in justifying people who know themselves to be, what, ungodly. You and I this morning, we can glory, we can bask in salvation. Why? Because it is a salvation we did not have to work for. It is a salvation that was given us as a gift, a free gift. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed abundantly on us, that being justified freely by faith, we might be heirs of eternal life. Titus chapter 3, 